Good morning. Today is Thursday, November 21st, 2013, and I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and I'm a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you would like to discuss any of today's topics or if you have a separate legal question, I encourage you to contact us calling into the switchboard at 347-855-8831 and we'll get to your question on the air. Um, we also encourage our listeners to contact us throughout the week uh, via various, uh, our various social media channels and on our website, understandingthelaw.com, with questions and comments. And we do have uh, some of those questions that we'll get to later on the show today as well. Um, I want to talk about the upcoming holidays because, uh, as many of you are aware, um, office parties are a huge part of uh, December, and it's something that um, if you haven't already received an invite to an office party at your company, you most likely will. And there is a, uh, a good deal of liability associated with office parties, not just from the employer standpoint, but also issues relating to employees. So I want to go over some statistics. Um, more than eight out of ten companies, and this is a, a survey conducted uh, on various size corporations, uh, all the way down to um, businesses that employ three, three to five people, up to companies that have hundreds and hundreds. Eight out of ten of these organizations, which is approximately 83%, host a holiday party for their employees every year. And uh, organizations with fewer than 200 employees, 90% of them were planning on throwing a holiday party. Now, what do you have to know as an employer concerning a holiday party and why are you doing it? Obviously, the holidays are here. It's a festive time. You want to build morale and you want to create a, a fun and enjoyable working environment for your employees. Um, and having a holiday party is, is often what you would do. Now, there are some guidelines as employees attending the party that you should follow. And I want to get to them first before we move into the um, guidelines for the employers themselves. So employees, while ultimately the company that you work for has a duty of uh, or a duty to make certain that the environment that you are working in, or in this case, having a party in, is not a hostile work environment, does not uh, foster an environment of sexual harassment. But beyond that general duty that employers have, you as an individual employee have your own duties and responsibilities. Oftentimes, you'll find a lawsuit involving a holiday party incident, and 
the victim will want to sue the employer and allege that they failed to keep the environment safe and free from uh, sexual harassment. And oftentimes what you'll see is that the employer has followed all of the necessary steps and done everything in his or her power to protect employees. And what really has happened is that the offending employee, employee has acted independently, um, almost outside the scope of his employment, if you will, and uh, you know, an intentional action that was not fostered by the corporation or by the company, but instead was something independent. And in those set of, of specific circumstances, the offending employee can be sued as opposed to the company. So let's talk for a minute about employee, uh, employees and behavior at holiday parties. It's common sense. Um, you know, it, it, you don't want to do anything that creates uh, a, a impression of you um, or puts you in a light that is not your true personality. And unfortunately, even if, if uh, something a little more risque is your personality, that's got to stay under wraps because you're still at a work-related function. You are at a holiday party. You're not at a bar on a Sunday watching football. And so even though it is a more lighthearted and festive time, you are still making an impression with your coworkers and clients and employers. So you've got to keep that in mind. A holiday party is not the time to cut loose. It's a time to be reserved, uh, to enjoy the company of your coworkers, but oftentimes what what we've found in surveys that we've conducted is that the vast majority of employees don't really want to go to the holiday party. It's either a break from the work day uh, and they're enjoying getting out of having to do work, or uh, it's something that they feel that they have to attend in order to keep everybody happy. So, you know, most of you out there that attend these holiday parties, I'm going to, you know, just throw something out there that most of you don't really want to go, especially those parties that happen after business hours where you've got to actually go to a restaurant or go somewhere or go back to the office. Most people don't want to go. Now, that being said, there still are a lot of people that do want to go, but the idea behind this is, is that it's not a a party in the sense that you would throw at your house. There are responsibilities you have as employees. You need to protect your job. You need to make sure that you don't do anything to embarrass the company. Certainly don't embarrass yourself. It is not the time to get drunk. It is not the time to say, oh, free alcohol, so let me take as much as I possibly can consume because now I don't have to pay for it. Not going to work out well for you. It is also not the time to make comments about uh, your coworkers' dress. And I don't mean uh, a dress that a female is wearing. I mean their dress, the way they're dressed. Um, you know, every time uh, alcohol is involved, people seem to feel free to talk about how uh, hot a female employee might look or something along those lines. And that's going to get you into a lot of trouble. So it's general basic guidelines. It's just the proper way to conduct yourself. 
but be aware that the improper actions that you might engage in at a holiday party can result in not simply being terminated from your employment, but also could, under certain circumstances, create actual liability for you where you might be um, you know, at, at the losing end of a judgment or um, you know, faced with, with, a, with an upcoming trial because of something you did that was deemed to be an intentional action outside the scope of, of your employment. So keep that in mind as employees, okay? Now, on the flip side, employers, what should you do throwing a holiday party in order to ensure that you're in compliance and that you don't have, um, you know, lawsuits that arise out of, out of a simple party, which was meant to be fun for your employees. So here's a typical set of guidelines that I like to um, go over with our corporate clients at this time of year. First of all, you must notify all of the intended guests you know, and we're referring to your employees, not to your clients, but to employees, about your policies, whether it's your sexual harassment policy or whether it's your code of conduct. You must send out a memo that says to everyone, hey, listen, we're having a holiday party and we want you to be aware that it is an office-sponsored event and that uh, the company's code of conduct and uh, employee guidelines should be observed. You need to, to affirmatively say that, not simply to remind employees, but also as a level of protection for yourself as uh, an employer who is tasked with maintaining a hostile, free environment and a non-sexually charged uh, you know, environment as well. So that's step one. Pass around a memo. You should also uh, think of this as a top-down approach. You need to inform managers and supervisors about how you expect them to behave and what their expectations of those underneath them should be. So talk to your managers and supervisors and explain to them that you know, obviously, we've got to follow the code of conduct. We've got to follow all of the guidelines of the sexual harassment policy. And I'm going to be counting on you to make sure that that happens. You know, put some burden on your supervisors and managers and, and let them know what you are expecting from them. Let them know that, that they should not be intoxicated. They should not be, you know, dressing up like Santa and having, uh, you know, 20 women sit on their lap. That, that's something that you're going to have to explain Again, not simply for their benefit, but for yours. Now, the other thing that you should consider doing is inviting spouses and significant others. Why? Well, oftentimes, an individual acting without the, um, you know, uh, or without being accompanied by his or her spouse is going to act differently. If, if his or her spouse is there or significant other is there, uh, it, it generally serves to keep that employee in check. I'm going to give you a story of something that happened uh, about five years ago at a law firm in uh, New York City. 
and it's a, uh, a relatively well-known firm. And what had happened was uh, early December, the firm decided that they were going to uh, kind of change up their annual holiday party. And instead of inviting clients and guests and, and employees to the office on a, on a particular day in December, they were going to do something a little bit different. They were going to kind of focus more on employees. They wanted to avoid some of the potential liabilities with respect to having people in their building and, you know, a hundred people uh, where they might lose control of them and whatnot. So what they did is they decided that they were going to take the employees out um, one night after work to a comedy club. And the thought process that the partners had was essentially – We'll take them to a comedy club. They're out in public. How wild and crazy can people get? Well, unfortunately, one of the senior attorneys who was unaccompanied by his wife uh, because spouses were not invited to this, it was a purely employee-only affair, um, had too much to drink and started heckling the comedians to the point where a physical altercation nearly ensued and they had to hold him back and ultimately they were all asked to leave the club. Now imagine what sort of impact that had on this attorney's job. Needless to say, the next day he was fired and uh, never again did the company have a holiday party simply because of the actions of one individual. But um, in hindsight, you look and you say, well, you know, if you had had this individual's spouse, if you had his wife with him, would he have acted the same way? And, you know, while there's always a possibility that he would have, I think that most of us, especially, you know, us men, I think that we would say we would be on better behavior because we wouldn't want to embarrass our wives. So uh, that's also another thing that you should think about doing, inviting spouses. Um, don't make attendance at a holiday party mandatory. It, it should always be voluntary. You don't want to force somebody that does not like social gatherings or does not want to attend to attend. It just produces negative results. So put the invitation out there. Don't make it a requirement. Don't make people think that if they don't go to the party that their uh, job will be affected in any way. Also, if you are going to be serving alcohol at a party, you need to um, really assess what sort of system you're going to employ with respect to the, the bar. There are companies that have employed a voucher system where each employee gets you know, a voucher for one to three drinks. And once their vouchers are used up, then they're not able to get any more uh, alcoholic you know, drink. And, and that's a system that a lot of companies have employed and it's successful. Uh, other companies have instead chose to communicate directly with the bartender that they're bringing in. And they advise the bartender that in the event anybody seems to be even slightly intoxicated that obviously they should be cut off and, and you know but that system leaves a lot to uh, the judgment of the bartender 
And while liability could theoretically shift to the bartender for serving somebody who was visibly impaired, um, there's a, a door left wide enough open for potential liability to creep back onto the employer. So you, know, you might want to uh, think about this voucher system. Uh, it, it may seem to some employees offensive. I can't believe you're giving me a voucher to go get a drink. What do you think? I'm not going to be responsible. Um, but it depends upon your assessment of who you're going to be having at this party. It also depends on what sort of industry you're in. Not to be stereotypical in any way, but depending upon your industry, you're going to have a different uh, category of people. And you know what I mean by that is you might have people that are um, more apt to act out at a social event, um, particularly perhaps younger people who maybe this is their first time. Maybe your staff is made up of primarily younger individuals, and this is their first or second time at a holiday party, and, and you know they don't yet really understand the implications of their, their actions and behavior. So you have to assess the overall level of your employees and what sort of maturity level they're at and then decide how you want to proceed with the, uh, the, the drinks, whether it's a voucher system or otherwise. Um, you should try to schedule events on weekends or after normal working hours. That's just simply to uh, protect um, things that might go on during the workday. You certainly would not want to have a party in the middle of the day where um, someone gets a little tipsy goes back into their office and starts calling clients and thinking that they can work. You know, if it's a real estate broker, you wouldn't want the broker to go have one too many and then try to you know, sell a property that's worth a million dollars for 50000 So that's always a good rule of thumb. Try to do it after working hours. Or if you are going to have it during the workday, the office needs to be shut down at that point where you wouldn't want to encourage anyone to go back to the office to do work. Um, you know, obviously, you need to just set the tone before the party, and that really involves the use of the memos that we talked about and reminding employees about responsibility. You know, specifically discuss and discourage excessive drinking and, and you know, make sure that everyone understands this is meant to be fun and you don't want to have any problems arising out of um, improper behavior. The other thing that, that you should keep in mind is Gift giving is not really a good thing with respect to office parties because often, oftentimes you know, you'll have uh, employees, you'll have a, a gift exchange, and I personally frown upon them because A, it requires the employees to go out and spend money on something, and B, you don't know what sort of gift an employee is going to give to another, and you don't know what sort of level of um, – acceptance or tolerance the recipient of a gift might have you know you might give to someone a, a, a you know a 2014 calendar with all shirtless firemen in it and to the average person it's acceptable but to the individual who is the recipient of the gift it might be extremely offensive so 
that just creates this other level of potential liability for employers that you really don't need. There's no need to have any sort of gift exchange at parties. So keep that in mind. And, um, you know, it's just a good idea to kind of set down these guidelines now before you send out the invitations or as you're setting out, setting out the invitations. So uh, some of it's common sense, but oftentimes employers don't think beyond the fact that it's costing money and um, that they're trying to give their employees uh, something to enjoy during the holiday season, a way of rewarding them. So keep that in mind. Now, uh, this next segment that we're getting into, uh, I want to let you know, is sponsored by TriggerSmart. Uh, TriggerSmart are the inventors of the world's leading child-proof smart gun technology. If you want to learn more about our sponsor, TriggerSmart, you can do so by visiting www.triggersmart.com. I'd like to thank uh, them for sponsoring this segment. Now, moving along with the theme of, of holidays, I want to take a second to briefly talk to employers again, but this time about uh, Black Friday premises liability issues. Black Friday is uh, obviously one of the busiest shopping days of the year. And while I'm speaking to employers, I also want um, you know, the average person out there who's going to be engaged in Black Friday shopping to just you know, give a listen to what I have to say because I think it's important um, for your safety as well. So Black Friday is always the Friday after Thanksgiving. And uh, as you know, you've been seeing for weeks now pre-Black Friday ads and um, you know, various apps and websites have uh, the flyers that come out before they can be released in the newspaper. And so it's obviously, it's a, it's a big thing. And a lot of people either start their holiday shopping on Black Friday or they're looking to Black Friday to get the bulk of their shopping done. Um, obviously, the reason is because of the sales or at least the perceived deep discounts that they're getting. I'll talk about that in a minute. So with respect to employers, you, know, you have to really understand what's going on. And, and a lot of, uh, of retailers, they have loss prevention departments that will come in and sort of um, give them an overview of how to maintain the store in a safe condition. But one thing that you as an employer uh, or as an employee can do to keep customers safe is obviously to inspect the aisles of the store. Make sure that the aisles are free from debris, free from excessive shopping carts, free from boxes and other falling items. Obviously, be careful when stacking items. Um, years ago, we were involved in a bunch of cases uh, from a major home improvement center where um, items that were, were stacked on high shelves were not properly secured and they were falling on people and, and injuring them. So, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, make sure that you have a meeting, a pre-Black Friday meeting with your team, with your employees, and explain to them not just about, um, you know, let's push product, let's sell, but explain to them about safety because it is something that every year, every year, there are lawsuits that arise out of Black Friday incidents. And, and this has gone back as far as I can remember. So it's not a, uh, you know, 
nonsense warning. It, it happens every year. I remember years ago, back in the early 80s, when Cabbage Patch Kids first came out, I remember that in New Jersey there was a Child World. Some of you might remember Child World. Uh, nowadays it's just Toys R Us, but Child World had a sale on, uh, on Cabbage Patch Kids, and they were very hard to get. And um, when they opened the doors, a pregnant woman ended up getting trampled by the crowd and losing the baby. So, you know, obviously a lawsuit followed. But my point is, is that while something as fun as trying to bargain hunt on Black Friday, um, it, it's really meant for, for, um, for fun purposes, quite honestly, um, can turn tragic. So you have to be aware of that. Employers also need to make sure that they have adequate security and, and proper professional trained security, not your neighbor's kid from down the street who, uh, who watches a lot of TV and loves Jack Bauer and 24 and now wants to be a security guard. You really need to have properly trained people. And the other thing that, that uh, employers or, or companies often overlook is the exterior of their store. Think about the parking lot. Give some thought to what's in it. You know, another story, just to uh, to highlight a point. A few years ago, we were involved in a case where outside of a mall in southern Jersey, an individual claimed that he slipped and fell on, uh, believe it or not, a banana peel. And it was a result of debris that had accumulated in the parking lot and that the mall had not done uh, what it needed to do to maintain the safe conditions in the parking lot. Without getting into too much detail, suffice it to say that the case settled, and if I recall, the guy received somewhere in the area of 35000 and I don't think, thinking back on that case, that he should have received anything, uh, but the burden is on the stores to make sure that their premises is maintained in a safe condition, so don't forget about the outside of your, of your building. For those of you engaged in, in the experience of fighting the crowds and shopping, just some, some personal thoughts. Uh, this year, there seems to be uh, pre-Black Friday sales that come close to rivaling a lot of the perceived savings on Black Friday. Uh, you know, with Cyber Monday, which is the Monday after, and, um, you know, obviously with... Uh, the ability to to shop before Black Friday and receive sale prices, you know, I just caution you, don't get caught up in the whole hype of it because most of what you see retailers selling are older stock products, last year's models. Um, Black Friday oftentimes includes you know, great prices on things that are, are closeouts or, or um you know, television models from the year before. And that's not to say that it's not a good deal and that you shouldn't make the purchase. But what is really, I think, uh, upsetting is to see people acting in a way that's so inappropriate, trampling others to get an item. Uh, so, you know, just my own two cents on that. Um, I think you just need to evaluate what it is you're doing and, whether or not the savings that you perceive is worth risking your safety or the safety of others. So uh, that being said, of course, Black Friday shopping can be fun. You can find some good deals. But as with anything, just act 
responsibly and reasonably under the circumstances. All right, now moving along, um, this is a very fascinating case. Uh, it comes out of Ohio, and it involves a lawsuit filed by the husband of a nurse who he claimed was worked to death. Um, and, and this is really a, a unique case. And at first glance, um, you know, you hear the, the facts behind this, and uh, at least to, to a lot of lawyers or, or you know, people in the legal field, you might think to yourself, I don't really see how there's a case here. But uh, having read the complaint myself, I, I start to wonder. I think that it's possible that this woman might actually, or not the woman, unfortunately she's dead, uh, but her husband might actually have a valid claim. Uh, so let me give you some, some factual background about this case. Uh, Beth Jasper was a nurse, and she was working out of the Jewish hospital in Cincinnati. Uh, and back in March, on March 16th of this year, she was driving home after having worked a 12-hour shift and was involved in a motor vehicle accident uh, where her car was flipped up in the air and, and she, was, she was killed upon, upon impact. And the, her husband, uh, Jim Jasper, sued and is alleging that the hospital itself was severely understaffed and that the nurses were overworked to the point of being, you know, quote, unquote, worked to death. And, uh, you know, he's seeking to, to put responsibility onto the hospital. Now, uh, Jewish Hospital in uh, Cincinnati was purchased by uh, a larger health care uh, provider, Mercy Health Partners of Southwest Ohio. So in the lawsuit, which was filed in Hamilton County, Ohio, uh, it names both the Jewish Hospital and Mercy Health Partners. Now, the facts contained in the complaint suggests that during the course of Ms. Jasper's uh, employment with the hospital from 2000 up until her death in March of 2013, that she was a nurse in the bone marrow trans uh, transplant unit and uh, was uh, involved in somewhat of, of a specialty. She was one of the only nurses that knew how to operate certain equipment on the floor that was necessary for medical treatment. And um, that throughout the course of, of her career, the amount of nurses that the hospital was employing had slowly begun to decrease. And once Mercy purchased the hospital out from um, its prior owners, uh, there was a, an even more drastic reduction in the workforce. And so the allegation really is that the hospital was so understaffed and it was so negligent that um, this, this death of his wife really constitutes wrongful death under the, um, you know, the, 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 the law of Ohio. So, again, you think to yourself, well, you're in the nursing field and you know, nurses work a lot. But how is the hospital responsible for this car accident that she got into? And if you look further into the facts in the background, what you see is that 
there's just this sort of systematic, at least in the allegations, systematic way or approach of having nurses work beyond their scheduled shifts, asking nurses to allegedly, you know, forego lunches and breaks and continue to work well beyond their shift. And it was primarily because of understaffing. And, and you know, while they might have been being paid overtime, that's not part of the lawsuit. Um, we don't, we don't, we're going to assume that they were. The fact is, is that you can't work a 23, 24-hour shift and be expected to have the same mental focus and abilities that you would if you were getting adequate sleep. So count one contained in the complaint is a wrongful death count against all of the defendants. And basically they're saying that the defendants knowingly and deliberately exhausted Miss Jasper in disregard of her safety and well-being. So in other words, they knowingly overworked her to the point of, um, you know, beyond what a reasonable person would consider normal working conditions. There's also a count for intentional tortious conduct, and that essentially is, is a negligence count that they negligently um, handled her employment, that they breached the duty of care that they owed to her. And then uh, Mr. Jasper has some loss of consortium claims and obviously uh, the same type claims for his minor children who she unfortunately left um, as a result of her death. Uh, there are, uh, there's a punitive damages count and uh, really what they're looking to recover is the loss of support, which uh, this is a loss of consortium claim in general of support from the deceased that you would have uh, received if she had obviously not not died, um, the care of the children, that sort of thing. So like a loss of services claim. And then pain and suffering and mental anguish and then the punitive damages, which are punishment for the, uh, the gross negligence that's, that's alleged in the complaint. So Again, it's really uh, something that at first glance you might say, wow, I can't believe that she can maintain or, or that, that her husband can maintain this case. It just doesn't sound as though there's any sort of connection between her accident and, and her working conditions. But the more you read the complaint, and I'm not saying that, uh, that he's going to win or that the case won't be dismissed, but the more that I read it as an attorney, I think to myself, well, there's actually a, a cognizable claim here and so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out now we received some comments from some of our uh, our Facebook fans um, and two of them in particular that I want to address are from nurses and the first one is from Sandy in North Carolina who's a nurse uh, at a hospital and she says that it's surprising that a tragedy like this doesn't happen more often, uh, that the way most hospitals operate is to operate um, with profit in mind, being understaffed, and that uh, a nursing shortage is not unusual. Uh, she goes on to say that hospitals do not want to hire enough nurses, and most nurses need breaks, but they work through them, and they work overtime, and according to uh, Sandy, they have many health problems because of it. 
So that's interesting to hear from a nurse in North Carolina what she believes. Uh, and then here's another comment from Tara, who is also a hospital nurse. She works in the emergency uh, department at a hospital in South Dakota. And she also uh, sort of mirrors the same uh, sentiment and says that she herself is often uh, asked to work at least two or three 24-hour shifts during any given week. And that's really, you know, almost unbelievable to fathom that you know, somebody is expected to work 24 hours straight, you know, not just once a week, but, but two to three times a week. So you, know, you can only imagine the level of care that somebody who has worked a, uh, a week that involved two 24-hour shifts, what they're going to be capable of, of doing. So, you know, this really... I think highlights between the lawsuit and the comments that we received the fact that profit drives a lot of our medical system and while doctors and nurses really you know enter the field hopefully uh, to or for the purposes of, of really taking care of others not simply as a means of, of making money but um, you know these individuals love what they do and they, they want to take care of people. But how can you really take care of somebody to the fullest um, extent of your ability when you are so physically exhausted? And so a lot of these larger medical organizations that are buying out small hospitals, um, they are, are approaching it from a bottom line financial standpoint as opposed to a level of care. Um, for any of, of the listeners that watch the um, the program Grey's Anatomy. Um, I, I've seen it every once in a while, but I had read an article about uh, sort of a storyline that was going on, I believe it was last year, where the hospital that uh, the characters work out of was um, in, in a bankruptcy situation, and, and a larger health group was coming in to purchase it. And what they wanted to do was really... Um, increase efficiency, not simply to benefit the patients, but really to cut out overhead. And it was really being approached not from a physician or caretaker standpoint, but from, you know, more of an accounting standpoint. And what's the least we can do to still get good results and not spend extra money is kind of the approach. And it was interesting because it, it, it sort of is a, um, you know, obviously it's fictional, but it gives some sort of insight as to how a lot of the larger medical organizations work. Uh, I think that we as individuals certainly are aware of how, you know, those insurance companies involved in healthcare and that sort of uh, healthcare uh, insurance plans, um, their goal is not necessarily to make sure that everybody has insurance and to take care of everybody, but really to protect the bottom line. They like to take in the claims uh, or the, uh, the um, premium payments, and then they like to sort of hedge on paying out the claims. Uh, they make a lot of people jump through hoops. So I think it's just uh, a way of kind of uh, providing an analogy between the big box medical companies and uh, healthcare providers who are coming in and buying up all these small hospitals. So 
it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and if there are other suits that sort of mirror this Ohio suit, and uh, we'll see where that goes. All right, now um, I want to give some updates as to some stuff that we have talked about recently uh, over the past few months, and one of them is uh, the appellate division decision in New Jersey concerning the liability of an individual who knowingly texts the operator of a, of a moving vehicle. Okay, so the scenario is you're at home on your lounge chair uh, or your recliner and you're aware that your best friend is driving to your house. Uh, you know that because he called you and he said, I'm on my way. And while he's operating the vehicle, you text him. As a result, he gets into an accident and uh, either causes personal injury or property damage to another vehicle or driver. Uh, the driver sues. They find out through discovery that he was engaged in text messaging. They find out that you are the sender of the text messages, and then they bring you into the lawsuit for contribution. So under the appellate division's decision, that could happen. So the way that the appellate division ruled is that if you knowingly text the operator of a moving vehicle. Well, what's going on this week is that um, legislation has been introduced in New Jersey with bipartisan sponsorship uh, that would counteract that appellate division ruling and, and essentially bar lawsuits against individuals who send texts. And the bill um, that, that we're looking at, it's, it's designated A. 4410, that's the bill in case you want to track it, uh, basically uh, states that anyone who sends a text message shall not be liable for civil damages resulting from a motor vehicle accident caused by, either directly or indirectly, the message recipient's unlawful use of a handheld wireless telephone while driving. Now, this is a proposed bill. And it's something that um, has to obviously pass the various levels before it becomes a law. But this is a bill that, uh, based upon the bipartisan support, I would imagine is going to be passed. Um, we talked about the original appellate division decision that was, uh, was issued. It really seemed to create a great deal of liability for people that might not really knowingly be texting the operator of a vehicle. I mean, it really puts a lot of, of, I think, burden on someone sending a text message. You know, it almost becomes, you know, paranoia. Well, do I not send a text message because I'm not sure if you're operating a vehicle? And I, I think that the, um, the, the bill that's pending now seems to make more sense to me because it puts the burden clearly on the operator of the vehicle. And that's really where it should be. It shouldn't be on the sender of the text. It should be on the person that's, that's operating the car. If they're driving and they receive a text message, A, there is no reason that you need to look down to see what the text message says, and B, you should be the one that has the burden of saying, I'm operating a vehicle. I know it's unlawful to operate a vehicle 
and send or operate a handheld phone. Send text messages or make calls without some sort of handheld uh, or hands-free device. So this is going to be uh, interesting, and I, I really wouldn't be surprised if this is passed. Um, a lot of, of um, assembly you know, men and women throughout the state were quite concerned when they received the appellate division ruling um, just because it was really heading down a very murky path of, of potential liability on the, the part of somebody who really has a great difficulty determining whether or not their actions are unlawful. You know, again, you don't know if the person that you're sending the text to is driving. How is it fair that you should be responsible when, you know, you, you may or may not know that they're operating a vehicle? Is it your fault as the sender? Well, this bill uh, is really strongly suggesting that it is obviously not, and it is the sole responsibility of the operator of the vehicle. So we will be following that, but uh, I really don't see this being something that uh, would not get passed. So keep that in mind. All right, next, we have talked a great deal this year in general about social media and its impact on business and how the NLRB, or the National Labor Relations Board, is the primary administrative agency overseeing and creating a lot of the law arising out of social media usage. Now, traditionally, the National Labor Relations Board is thought to, have to be um, you know, synonymous with, with union and union representation and that sort of thing. And it, it's true that it is. Uh, union laws are governed by the National Labor Relations Act. And, um, you know, what uh, constitutes protected speech of a group of employees who are assembling as a union would uh, is all spelled out in the act. But the NLRB has gone beyond uh, the simple uh, union sort of designation as to who, what, what they can get involved with. And they've opened up the areas of administrative law concerning social media as a, um, a, a means of being able to address employees' concerted actions and comments concerning employers via social media. Now, what does all that mean? Essentially, the NLRB is saying that if one or more employees engage in conversation via a social media platform, and that uh, conversation qualifies for protection under the National Labor Relations Act because it is um, a, a uh, discussion about working conditions or pay or other protected topics under the Act, that that should fall under the jurisdiction of the NLRB. And the general rule is that while an employer can fire an individual who is making uh, you know, certain comments via social media, they can't fire them for conversations they're having with coworkers about working conditions. So in other words, if 
you uh, send a, a, a Facebook message to a coworker and you say, I really don't think it's fair that we have to work overtime and we're not getting paid for it. And, and that conversation goes back and forth, but that really is the, the tone and subject of the conversation. You can't go into work the next day and be fired because that's protected communication under the National Labor Relations Act. But if you say, you know, my, my boss, Mr. Smith, he's a real jerk, he's very stupid, I think that he's uh, stealing money from the company, that's not protected speech under the National Labor Relations Act. And so when you return to work the next day, Mr. Smith will, you know, be handing you your pink slip and you shouldn't be surprised when that happens. But what's going on this week is that, um, you know, these NLRB rulings are just coming out all the time now, and, and they're really trying to narrow the uh, focus down into a specific set of, of rules that they can create and craft for employers and employees engaged in the use of social media. Well, this is a decision that came down this week by the National Labor Relations Board concerning um, protected speech that exceeded the bounds of what protections the act can extend. So you know, this is a case um, that involved two employees and uh, they were essentially working at a, a, a district neighborhood center. And they were engaged in sort of like a like a camp. They were engaged in creating activities for teens and that sort of thing. And so they engaged in a Facebook conversation, and they made comments that contained a, a large number of expletives. Um, you know, I, for example, I don't feel like being their uh, beep and making it all happy, friendly, middle school, campy, let's do some cool, uh, you know, beep, and then figure out the money, no more Sean, you know, let's beep it up. So, you know, this this sort of, of conversation continued, and while it, it did, in a way, discuss, uh, you know, not not necessarily payment and salary, but uh, overall supervision and management, which theoretically is protected by the National Labor Relations Act, this went so far afield from what's protected that the administrative law judge said, you know, yes, portions of your of your communication could theoretically be construed to be protected, but with with the use of your foul language and your demeanor it's taken it so far outside the realm of what really is protected that, that this does not constitute protection. And you should have been fired for your actions, which they were, and that's how this whole thing came about. The employer um, was, was, was privy to the information being exchanged on Facebook, and when uh, they called in the two individuals, they fired them, and then the individuals retained a lawyer, went to the National Labor Relations Board seeking some sort of, uh, of, of, of monetary reward. And the administrative law judge this week said, no, that uh, the, you know, your expletive-laced Facebook posts are just not protected 
under the National Labor Relations Act. So that's an interesting case. It is a clear distinction between um, what we've seen over the past few months where the National Labor Relations Board is really kind of carving out all of these rules concerning social media. Well, here is an exception to the rule. Um, so just because your comments, which, which are you know, filled with foul language and whatnot, do mention your working conditions, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to qualify under the National Labor Relations Act. So that is, uh, is interesting. All right, the final thing that I want to mention uh, today is about New Jersey and its minimum wage law that it's now added to the state constitution. So on November 5th of this month, uh, New Jersey became the fifth state to add a minimum wage to its state constitution. Uh, minimum wage is something that is obviously established by the federal government and um, states in general, but only five states, believe it or not, have it as part of their state's constitution. So right now in New Jersey, the uh, minimum wage is $7.25, and the change is a, a dollar. So uh, starting in January of 2014, the 7.25 minimum wage goes up to $8.25. And in addition to the $8.25 minimum, uh, it's going to also set forth some automatic increases, which are being tied into the rate of inflation, again, starting in, uh, in January of 2014. The other states that, that have the uh, uh, minimum wage laws in their constitutions, by the way, are uh, Florida, Colorado, uh, Nevada and uh, and Ohio, um, so you know it's it's uh, it's a, a new development. It certainly is a uh, a large jump. It's a it's a dollar in the minimum wage. What's interesting here is that um, originally Governor Christie opposed the bill. He vetoed the original bill that asked for a minimum wage increase uh, uh, of up to eight dollars and fifty cents. And Governor Christie proposed the 825, but was hoping to institute that over a three-year period, so that you know it, it increased slowly. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. But what's going to be interesting to see is, does the increase in minimum wage, because it's a significant increase for employers, does that help the workforce? Does that help unemployment rates? You know, what's going to happen here? Because it's possible that a lot of smaller employers are going to say, well, now having to pay a dollar more per hour, I'm not able to hire that other person or I need to let somebody go. So I'm not quite sure if it's going to backfire or not. Um, you know, people have been fighting for minimum wage increases ever since minimum wages were established. And I was reading last week that uh, out in Seattle, Washington, People were protesting, looking for $15 an hour minimum wage. So it all sounds good, and it's certainly, you know, you as the employee would, would love to have, you know, a, a massive increase. But in the grand scheme of things from an economic standpoint, is it really going to help this country's economy, which is already suffering, or is it going to create such added burden on particularly small to mid-sized employers that now more people are going to be out of work. 
So I'm not quite sure that this is going to have uh, any sort of desired effect or that it's going to somehow decrease the unemployment rate. I think, quite honestly, that it's going to have a, uh, a, an opposite effect, and it's going to, to force many small businesses to let go of certain employees uh, or to not hire others. So uh, it's, it's interesting. We'll have to see how 2014 uh, starts to look when we see what the unemployment rate is and whether or not the minimum wage law has had any sort of impact on what uh, unemployment rates will be next year. So we will follow that. Uh, that's all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank you for joining me, and uh, I'd like to, again, remind you that if you have questions or comments or topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the show, that you can call us directly at 973-949-3770, and uh, you can also contact us via email at info. I-N-F-O, at Peter Lamont, that's P-E-T-E-R-L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q dot com, and let us know what you think about uh, some of the topics that we've discussed or what topics you would like to hear, or if you have a question. You know, we're happy to answer your legal questions on the air or off the air, uh, so we encourage you to call in, and uh, we also welcome people calling into the switchboard during the show. That number is different than the number that I just gave out. The switchboard number is 347-855-8831. That number is only good during uh, the live broadcast of the show. Uh, but the other number, the 973-949-3770, is where you can reach us should you have any questions or topics that you'd like to see developed. Uh, or discussed, I should say. Uh, you can also visit us online at understandingthelawradio.com, and it talks about upcoming guests and upcoming topics, and you can post questions and uh, you know give us some, some ideas of some topics that you would like to uh, see or, or hear on the show. So thank you again. Uh, hope you have a wonderful day, and remember that there is power in understanding the law. Once upon a morning, there was a freshly brewed McCafe coffee. It was made with 100% Arabica beans, yet something was missing. Fear not, in the distance, a sausage McMuffin with egg rides toward the sunrise in quest for breakfast. The perfect pair met at McDonald's, and mornings were happy forever after. Right now, get a $1 small coffee and a $2 sausage McMuffin with egg from the $1, 2, $3 menu. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal.